Listeners, and welcome to episode 105 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're listening to us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to 40k roleplaying, whether it's made by Black Industries or Fantasy Flight Games or Ulysses North America or Cubicle 7. So, uh, as you would have might have heard the news in the last sort of month, there's been some changes once again with the license, which we'll cover off as yeah. part of this show. But obviously, if it's 40k roleplaying, we're definitely going to cover it. Yep. So, um, we cover the game systems. Uh, each episode, we go through a few uh, key elements about the system. Before we talk about today's episode, our last sort of month in gaming, what have we had? Um, uh, we played your, we played, yeah, sorry, we played your Wrath and Glory we session. We played my Wrath and Glory session. Originally, we were going to record a podcast that night, but then someone was sleeping in your house and it wasn't going to work out that well. So, yeah. But we played Wrath and Glory. How that, how that session go from your mind? Yeah, I think it went quite well. It, it was a lot more combat heavy than all the previous sessions put together, but yeah. yeah that's it. I think I joked that I think my character took like three three sessions to import a gun, and then in that one session killed like sixty people in the first round of combat. Yeah, so. well, it wasn't really your character. Every, character. Everyone was playing a, a, a ringing character from a flashback scene as as a marine, so yes. obviously there was a a lot more killing, especially when they were fighting against the equivalent of Gretchen. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> But uh, that went quite well with us. Um, I ran my new Monero game in the last month as well. I, uh, as I, said, I did another battle tech session via um, via YouTube with AP Game Real, so I finished off that series that I was doing there. Yep. And um, there's now, if you watch that channel now, there's talk about a Wrath and Glory game coming up probably around July in uh, on, on AP Gaming, on Arthur, on Arthur Perkins Gaming Channel anyway. Yep. Um, and the other thing I did during this month was I actually sat down and... Back in episode 103, we talked about rules for using uh, Wrath and Glory characters in the tabletop in a war game, and I sat down and created some rules, sort of took what we discussed there and refined them a bit. They're mostly done. Um, pretty much the only thing I'm really missing right now is the psychic powers. Yeah. Um, but I did all the gear, did all the talents, did all the, the careers and, so, and, and species, so... I mean, I put it up onto the Wrath and Glory Facebook page, given that apparently I can't put PDFs up onto R... Facebook page, given that it's a, a business page, apparently. You can't put PDF without paying for a PDF app, I think, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's on the Wrath and Glory fan page, uh, and then once it's completed, I'll probably put it up on our website as well, once I get the psychic yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think our website's probably the best place to put it. Exactly right, yeah. yeah. Um, also, starting last episode, we've been covering off a featured podcast 
uh, each time as well. So this time I thought we'd just mention the um, the Story Told podcast via the D20 Radio Network, which is a general role-playing variety podcast. So not down to a particular system, just ideas for all sorts of gaming. Episode 9 for them just went up. So yep. uh, check them out via uh, uh, d20radio.com. Uh, in today's show, obviously the big thing is the news section. We talk about the changes with, with the license. Um, we are covering off the Aldari, sorry, Aldari species or Eldar species. Eldar. Um, we did get a request. We, we put it to the fans as to what they wanted to hear about career-wise, and they chose the Corsair as the option there. Um, we're going to have a quick chat about the Inari rules that came out in White Dwarf recently. And then just a quick chat about... I guess playing an alien in 40k, not so much from the point of view of the system, but more the things to do to sort of convey that alien style as well. Yeah. Uh, then we'll do our regular community section and finish off the show. So anyway, I think everyone's here for the news. So let's uh, get straight into that. Command acknowledged accessing Imperial archives. So in case you've been living under a rock or you're listening to the show at some point in the future when this is old news, uh, in the last month, um, there were some big changes to do with the 40k RPG licensing. Uh, so I think for a while people have been sort of noticing there wasn't a lot of communication from Ulysses North America uh, about Wrath and Glory. So they had had some some actual changes to their social media policy where they'd collapsed their various pages into a single page. And there'd been a lot of talk about their current Kickstarters to do with Torg and Fading Suns, but not a lot of sort of coverage on Wrath and Glory. People were a bit concerned. Then we had... Um, Warhammer Fest taking place in uh, in Europe yep. or in England, and it was on the card there that both Cubicle 7 and Ulysses North America were going to have um, segments there to talk about what they were doing with the RPGs, and the first thing people noticed was that um, there was no Ulysses event in the end. Um, it was still it remained on the card the whole time, but it never actually took place. Yep. Um, and then within a couple of days, people noticed that uh, all of the Wrath and Glory, uh, and all the old, like the Dark Heresy, Black Crusade, etc., properties vanished from Drive Through RPG. So if you already had them, if you'd already acquired them, then they still sat in your library and they still showed a publisher as Ulysses Spieler, but, um, they weren't appearing. You couldn't search for them. And, um, things like the Wrath and Glory page on the Ulysses website now went to a 404 page not found. Uh, it was still on the German site for some reason, but not on the, on the English site. So, of course, this has led to rampant speculation. Um, a lot of people sort of talking about this on Facebook. There are a lot of people who were copying in um, Ulysses uh, people, or particularly Ross, via the conversations, trying to get some sort of response out of them yep. as to what was going on. A lot of people sort of decried, well, okay, I guess this is another dead license, you know, I'll move on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then, uh, a few days later, news came out that um, Cubicle 7 had picked up the 40k RPG license, uh, that Ulysses Spieler would continue to do the German translation. Which is why that page still existed. Yes. Um, and that uh, while they would look to revise um, the the setting, yeah, it, was, it was presumably going to remain the same. And then also about a day after that, we we're going to note on Ross Watson's page, Shane, that he is now signed on with Cubicle 7 to work on Wrath and Glory. Can't see anyone. That was basically what he said. So yeah. that's pretty much it as far as the actual official news cycle goes. There was actually a, um, a press release from Cubicle 7, which we'll post uh, in the show notes as well. Yeah. Uh, and I guess 
Let's have a quick talk about sort of, I guess, what we know. We can speculate too, because it's rampant speculation rampant time. Exactly. I, I, I saw some really interesting comments on the Facebook pages and the, and the forums that make me feel that some people probably don't have a lot of idea about how IP licensing works. Um, I, I saw that you know there was sort of one person who, who argued, well, you know, Games Workshop can't stop Ulysses from talking about this. That they own this. They own this property. You know, it's been that they bought it, they have a right to use it, and of course, that's not actually how licensing works. So, normally, with a, a licensing contract, and, and I will say that in my in my day job, I, I do work sometimes on IP licensing as well. Um, there will be a provision in the contract which basically states what and how the properties can be used. Yeah. So, um, I've obviously never seen the the forty k licensing stuff from GW, but I can speculate here that. They probably say that you're able to use certain parts of the property. So you can use, you know, the images, the names, um, the setting, uh, you know, the, the vehicles, the characters, etc. There might be limitations. So they may say, that, for example, to the role-playing license, you can't go and put in role-playing stats for Abaddon or Gulliman, you know, or, or any of the major characters, that might be a provision that they would put in there, for example. They're, yeah. they're defined by the... By the um, yeah, they, the they may, may say you're not allowed to talk about squats. Yeah, that's it. They, they, no they felonids. Yeah, so, you know, so, so think about things like... Um, okay, so... What's an example? Okay, Ordinatus. Okay, so you know, an Ordinatus was a giant war machine, really only appeared in, in Epic 40K. Never really seen a reference to them in the 40K novels. Never really seen them in the war game. I've oh. seen them, yeah. In Horus Heresy, the Adeptus Mechanicus have some Ordinatus. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things where I, I could imagine, for example, there might be a thing that says, unless it appears in the 40K tabletop setting, it's not relevant to the 40K RPG. Yeah. Um, in which case, I can't use it. So, I, I'd heard rumors some time ago that there were limitations with being able to use some of the elements from Necromunda that were specific to Necromunda, not just gangers, you know, but like actually using like some of the gang names, for example. And one thing that I sort of noticed is, I guess, missing in Wrath and Glory that was, a, I guess, a standout was um, Arbitase. There's no sort of Arbitase um, archetype in uh, in Wrath and Glory, which I, I think some people stood out as a as an unusual thing, basically, that was missing because that, that's probably one of the more role play friendly careers in in 40k. Um, so, okay, so there's that, there's that part that probably the licensing would say that, you know, that the licensee or the, you know, the licensed user, you know, can use certain parts of the property to produce their product. Um, there'll probably be a degree of oversight from GW, you know, so that there would need to be the need to have, because I, I do notice that in the, in the, um, credits for all of the, all of the RPGs, there was always accredited a GW licensing manager as well. So presumably they have a person who looks after, that sort of thing, and, and keeps the uh, keeps the law consistent, keeps everything running the way you would expect it to. Yeah. Um, okay. Then also with the licensing, there's usually then a requirement upon the license holder. So you know that they it's not only a permit to say that you can do this, but it's a requirement to say that you must do this. So it's all well and good to go and get a license to develop a computer game, but if you're not actively working on it, that means that. Another company who might be paying for it um, can't work on it because you're holding up that license while not actually producing something, for example. And while you're not producing something, the license loses traction. Exactly right, yeah. And, and now some licenses are based on the concept that I pay X dollars to, to hold the license 
anything I make with that license, I take the profits from. Yeah. Or it could be I pay X dollars, which might be a smaller amount or whatever the case would be, to, to have access to that license. And whatever I produce, I have to give a portion of those proceeds as a royalty to the original license owner as such. And I can make the difference in my own margin as well. So for a license user to not be producing materials, there is potentially a, there is, there may be or there may not be a financial loss for the license owner, depending upon the terms of the original license agreement as well. So once again, don't really know in this case, but just speculating here. So. Uh, some people said to me, um, why do you think this happened with, with Ulysses? Um, I honestly don't know. If I had to guess, I would probably guess it was a cadence issue that, um, you know, obviously the, the, the Ulysses license was announced at Gen Con in 2018, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then one year later, there is a single book along with a starter pack. Um, which was done through mainly through a pre-order. Um, now that's been quite successfully sold in stores. Most stores I speak to that got Wrath and Glory said that it sold very well. Um, so we don't have any numbers on the pre-order because that wasn't made public as such. But once again, because GW is a public company, um, but certainly uh, uh, all impressions point towards it being a relatively successful product release. Yeah. Um, but at that point in time, we haven't seen anything since Gen Con twenty. Oh, sorry. It's announced in 2017, released in 2018. It's now, we're now two months out from Gen Con 2019, and there were no other product releases. So I'm just guessing that maybe they had an expectation of more than one major product a year per year. Um, I'd and, say so. It's just a guess, anyway. And, and it might just come down to the resources available to Ulysses, which not only is, is producing new materials, but is also translating for other companies' existing materials. They're dealing in multiple languages in multiple countries with multiple IPs as well. Um, a lot of people said, why don't they just do a Kickstarter? You know, because Kickstarter, you can use to generate more income, more interest, get more staff potentially. I really don't see a public company like Games Workshop doing something like a Kickstarter because the thing is, you got to realize as a public company, people have invested in Games Workshop who have zero interest in plastic miniatures, but who have interest in making money. So they see it as a business with a growth trajectory where the share value will go up, and therefore, if I invest in it, my my um, portfolio value will increase as well. So those people will be looking at announcements by and about the company for guidance as to where the share price might go. So something like Kickstarter, which is a public um, pre-order campaign almost, um, if you were to run a Kickstarter and it was to fail, then a potential shareholder might look at that and say, well, they've invested all this time into this project, which now isn't going to survive. Ergo, maybe they're not on the right trajectory right now and I should pull my money out. So um, I would think that if I was running a public company, I would choose to do closed pre-orders rather than through things like Kickstarter. If it was me. Yeah, yeah. Kickstarter is just too risky for a business to to use as a major way of selling product, especially a public listed company. Well, you can't can't just remove data from it. You can't just say, okay, scrap this and then pull the data off that's there before everything remains behind as such, you know. So, and and I guess you can make promises. Those promises are, you know, recorded there on the website and they've got to be honored. And look at what happened with Chaosium where they nearly ran themselves out of business trying to deliver horror on the Orange Express, basically. Yeah. Um, so I'm not surprised that they, they chose to go that way. I mean, the whole thing with it, with a pre-order like they did is they could take, they could take 10,000 orders, decide that they had overcommitted, decide to scrap the product, 
and then just tell them tell the market, oh no, we didn't get enough pre-orders, so here's your money back, you know, and and it, it doesn't look any any worse than. You know, that would look worse. I said that would look less worse to an investor than all these people wanted to buy a product and we couldn't deliver it. Yeah. You know, so, so saying we did say we missed, we misjudged the market is probably a lesser crime. Um, but anyway, I don't, I don't know if needs to happen. This is just talking about the way that I perceive, um, uh, these sort of campaigns. But the long and short of it around now is the fact that, um, Ulysses will still be involved. Um, from a translation point of view, but Cubicle 7 is going to pick up the license now, which means that Cubicle 7 holds the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the Age of Sigmar Roleplay, and Wrath and Glory. And they were recently at UK Games Expo, and they had the Wrath and Glory book and the starter set on their stand there as well. Um, speaking of, did you hear about the controversy at the UK Games Expo as well? No, no, no? not really. Okay, so this, this is a side topic, but I found this one quite interesting, was that um, so, so UK Games Expo is like a conventional convention yeah. you know in that you have vendor stores you have events going on but you also have gaming spaces where you can go and um uh just you know, play a role-playing game play a board game whatever and apparently what happened was that there was a complaint from a attendee that she had participated in a role-playing session where the gm had employed oh, sorry i put it had effectively, effectively used sexual assault of the player characters as an, as a storytelling element in their game. Yeah. Um, and she was quite offended by it, as I'm sure a lot of people would be. Um, and, uh, the games expo handled this basically by, um, well, first off, so they, they do have, they have a code of conduct and the code of conduct specifically prohibits that sort of material. So straight away, the guy who did it breached the code of conduct. He was, um, his game was stopped. He was kicked out of the show and he was actually, I think, banned from future shows as well. Yeah. Um, but it was enough that it made, made media coverage. I saw it in elements that weren't just gaming news as well. Um, so I, I guess a bit embarrassing there for the, for the organizers. And, and what's interesting was I actually saw a whole conversation thread on, on Facebook about it where, um, yeah, there were, there were people coming out sort of defending, I guess, the freedom of speech element of saying, you know, role, say role playing games have, have violence and murder and that sort of stuff in them and, and how is this any different? But it was, yeah, it was, a, it became a very controversial thread pretty quickly, you know, so. Yeah, but, that's a pretty weak argument. How is this different? Well, it is. <laughs> exactly. It, it was. How is murdering a small child any different from murdering an adult? Well, I mean, and the best point, someone it ra- is. <laughs> the, the, the best point that someone raised in regards to that is that yes, role playing games include violence as part of their storyline, but they don't just include outright murder generally or if they do it's usually only done by evil characters and most games like D&D have a setting have a system where if your character continues doing evil acts you will become a game master character and are no longer a playable character so it doesn't incentivize players to engage in what will be considered outright evil acts yeah unless it's Black Crusade yeah <laughs> in which case there's probably a, a disclaimer to it but I'll just point this particular case back to the golden rule was the fact that there was a policy in place by the expo that was breached. Yeah. So whether you agree with the, um, uh, the, the material or not, it was still in breach of the guidelines that was put out by the event organizers. It, it so. was in breach of what he had agreed to do. He exactly said, right, yeah. I will run this as requested. I will not include this in, in this sort of gaming setup. Yeah. And he did, which is a breach. And yeah, they were fully within their rights to remove him. Yeah, that's right. whether and you agree with having that sort of content in the game or not. Yeah, especially in a, in a public game like that, as such, you know. So yeah, I mean, I remember um, I used to run Shadow Ambitions at conventions, and um, there was a Shadow Ambitions 
So this is a, this is a pre-written mission that was designed to be run at conventions at Gen Con, for example, that had a scene where basically um, young girls, like, like still legal age, were being um, effectively drug addicted and silently modified to how to basically fill a brothel that the, that the player characters got inside and were sort of looking for and um, managed to sort of break up. But the material, that, that, that as a concept is in itself quite, I guess, m- mature. And I sat down to run a session one time. There's a father there with these two kids that are aged like eight and ten, you know, and I had to quickly think on the fly about how do I change this scene so that those themes are not obvious and, and not really in, in play for, for this guy's kids, you know. So, yeah. But that was, that was an interesting challenge anyway. Um, but, yeah, okay, so coming back to the key point was that, um, you know, we're now seeing more information coming out of Cubicle 7. Nothing official yet, just to say, well, sorry, officially saying, yes, I've got it, but nothing in terms of new yeah, material. There, there, a lot of... There's no mention about what the revision to the new edition is. And that's, that's, what, that's the main news to come out of this. That's what people are wondering right now. There's this sort of, I guess there's this fear that they will recreate it all, and I don't really think that's likely. Neither I, th- I think that for the most part it will be just, let's put the errata into the book, let's need enough. I mean, it's, there are a lot of people complaining. Let's change the logo on the cover of the book is pretty much it. I mean, it's going to be the same as what happened between Black Industry and, and Fantasy, Fantasy Flight. Fight, yeah. With, yeah. That, that was big. They went from black and white pages to colour pages. Yeah, so. see, that, that was the sort of changes that it was. I mean, it wasn't like there was anything groundbreaking in the rules system or anything like that that changed. I believe it would be on that sort of level that, that the... Yeah, I was really surprised. There were a lot of people on the forums and on Facebook who really didn't like the production quality of Wrath and Glory, either the physical production quality or the material. Really? And I, I'm not a problem with it. I think it's been good. It's been well reviewed, and it sat on the on top of Drive Through RPG for weeks. So I mean, look, everyone's got different tastes. Um, I was just, I'll, I'll, I'll be 100 percent honest. I yeah. do prefer a percentile system because it's just easier to do. It's just easier to look at a number. Is that number higher than this number? Yeah. As a core mechanic, you can't get any simpler than that. It is three higher than four. So, no, it's a fail. Uh, but that doesn't mean that this new system is bad. It just means it takes an extra five minutes to explain to people. <laughs> so, so I've read a, um, a number of reviews people have written where they've directly compared Wrath and Glory to the older, you know, percentile systems. And one thing that they all seem to say, the one bit of praise they did put on Wrath and Glory, is that the nature of the game means the time to prepare for a session as a GM is much shorter. Yeah. You know, because they're much, much easier to pull out adversaries. Oh. And, yeah. Combat runs so much faster. Yeah. You saw in the game I ran just the other other week how much faster that combat is. To do that combat under the old percentile system would have taken all session for just that first fight. Yeah, even with the horde rules. Even with the horde rules, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Although I suppose there would have been an opportunity to break them under the horde rules, really. Cause they're, they're, yeah. mm. <laughs> anyway. So I guess that's really the the main story. So everything is now returned to Drive Through RPG. It's now listing the publisher as Cubicle 7 Entertainment. Uh, that includes all the old, um, you know, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, etc. material as well. Yep. So it's all available there. Once again, if you had it previously, you had access to it the whole time, and you still have access to it now. So, all right, let's talk about Games Workshop news in general. So yes. I guess again, there's quite a bit of stuff to talk about. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, um, let's go back before Wonderfest, and probably the one big thing is the big fact was released, um, which. Eventually. Eventually, yeah. which I think did sort of confirm some of our suspicions about what was going to appear in there. Um, they refined bolter drill a bit more to make it a lot more balanced. Yeah. Um, I will say that I, I played 
a, uh, a session recently of 40k um, tabletop where I did my um, Adeptus Custodes for the first time against our friend Steve's Dark Eldar, and I absolutely smashed him. And I'm just, you know, I, I wasn't missing Bolter Drill. I didn't need Bolter Drill Not to, win, to win that game. Nah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's, um, uh, it, was, it was actually quite a good game. I was surprised. I, I, I thought I was going to get my ass kicked a lot earlier in the game, and I seemed to manage to make it through. Yeah, you had a, you had a captain on a jet bike, didn't you? Or no, no, no. I, I had, had a squad of three jet bikes. That's right, yeah. And the, I, I think that if we played the game again a second time, it would go differently because... Steven never played Custodes before, so now he had a better idea about target priority, basically. Uh, what's going to do the most damage? Because I, I had units that did Sweet FA in that particular one. I actually I played a 500-point game of Eldar versus Chaos Space Marines recently as well, testing out um, Tabletop Simulator. And it was the first time I'd used Rangers, and they were absolutely useless, uh, which is funny because <laughs> I, I bought two boxes of Rangers recently. But I'm sure, anyhow, it gives, a di- it gives a different army in a different context, they'll do better, but they did literally zero damage. Like, they didn't do a single wound the entire... <laughs> the entire um, oh, I, I think they're one of those things which they're good for holding objectives in bigger games. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like any of, the, any of the snipers. You know, if there's a character that you can pick off, great. But, I mean, the fact that they are a strengthful weapon with no AP... Um, or I think it's one to one AP still. Um, is they're going to struggle to put dam- real damage on, especially so. against marines. Like, especially against marines, yeah. So, um, any case, it, it wasn't too bad. I st- the old still won, um, quite convincingly too. But it was just I was surprised at the, how poorly the rangers did. Um, especially I like the models. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the quality of the model doesn't affect the quality of the unit. <laughs> Otherwise, dreadnoughts would be awesome. Yeah, if only the quality of the painting affected the quality of the unit. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, well, speaking of the quality of the painting, I, I guess the one big story to come out of Warhammer Fest. So, um, going back to April, there was a, a joke video out of GW for 50, 50 Shells of Grey, yeah. which was talking about you know unpainted models. And they've now released, or they were about to release next week, a new series of paints called contrast paints. Yep. I, I do like the fact that people say that, you know, if, if, um, if washes are, you know, uh, uh, a talent in a bottle that contrast paints are saying, hold my beer. Yeah. Uh, Cause fundamentally what contrast paints do is they're, they're, they're a very high pigment count. Very high um, viscosity. Very high viscosity. So the idea would be that when you paint them onto a model that they pull in the crevices, just like inks do, but they actually pull away from the edges and so that way you actually get a combination shadow and highlight in a single coat. Yeah. Um, now, there are limitations to these contrast paints. First off, they're not really good for big open areas because they become very streaky, even with multiple coats. And if you do do multiple coats, they tend to lose the benefit of being contrast because they now start to overclog up the detail and they start to not pull away from the edges and you lose the highlight, basically. Um they're not meant to be for, you know, golden demon quality painting models. They are intended to be for rank and file troops to get armies painted quickly and on the board fast. You know, GW talks about this new thing they call tabletop standard. So you're talking about it's for my 4,000 points of Tyranid troops. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And, and I think that the, the perfect example of, of targets for contrast paints are those like organic troops, like, like pox walkers. Like um, gaunts, like orcs, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Even Imperial Guardsmen, they've got a lot of... Well, it depends on the type of Guardsmen. I've just, someone put up one of the... He, he's painted for Games Workshop before for White Wolf, and he put up on a Facebook page I'm a member of, and it's okay. pictures of his Valhallans who are using a contrast, contrast paint, okay. and they look fantastic. 
Because I, I, really I actually saw a really nice Alpha Legion paint job where they've used um, bolt gun, not bolt gun metal, um, uh, what's it called now? Um, the silver... Uh, um, lead Belcher? Lead Belcher. They've, <laughs> they've used Lead Belcher as a base uh, and then painted the turquoise um, contrast paint over the top of the metallic. Yeah. And because it's got well, high viscosity, the metallic shows through and it gives you a, a really nice metallic turquoise colour that actually goes really well for Alpha Legion that... I would consider using my Alpha Legion if I hadn't already painted my tanks for the Alpha Legion in in this in the classic in my classic Stegadon scale green um, coloring. Yeah, but the (laughs) tanks are going to be painted differently from the troops. (laughs) I'm sorry, the camo of a tank doesn't match the camo of an infantryman in our army. Why should it match it in the the Alpha Legion? (laughs) Um, I saw someone who's tried to do um, contrast paints over Zenithal highlights. So this is where you know pro painters. Uh, doing this thing where they actually spray a base primer onto the model that is that is darker towards the bottom of the model and, and lighter towards the top. So you start by spraying it black and you do like a grey a bit higher up and a white over the top. And that- the usual one is a white at um, 90 degrees and a grey at 45 degrees. Yeah, and that way what you get is when you paint your colours over the top, that base layer applies a, a sort of darkness gradient to it, which yeah, gives, you a, shadow. It gives you yeah, a better degree of shadow. But... From what I saw, the a lot of the models that they tried doing with Zenithal highlights didn't turn out as well with um, with contrast paints, mainly because contrast paints aren't meant to go on to dark base colours. So there's two new primers. Um, Specifically for them, the ones are Wraith, Wraith Bone, Bone and, and Grey Seer. Grey Seer, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and, Which is uh, great because grey is my go-to undercut, undercoat. Yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> I, I think actually with mechanic and standard grey undercoat is sometimes you can't tell whether you undercoated them or not. You've got to feel the model to see if it feels like paint or like plastic. Um, but yeah, but grey here is a much lighter grey. And then you've also got those same two colours as potted base colours. So the idea would be that, say I was doing ultramarines, I would spray the whole model with grey sear. I would paint the whole model with contrast gloom and blue. I could then use the darker colours like Black Templar to do all the black details. When it came to doing lighter details like the reds, the yellows, the silvers, I would have to use my grey sear base paint again to, to pick out those areas again and then do the, the contrast paints. I couldn't contrast yellow over blue, for example. It wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, but once again, it's still much faster then the classic base color, fill in all your crevices with your um, with your shade, and then go back and edge highlight all of your, you know. Um, pro- I don't know how it would compare with, like, say, dry brushing an army, if you had an army that was was relatively... Yeah, I, I, I think if Necrons is your army, this isn't really going to change much for you. But if, for Orcs, Tyranids, hordes of Guardsmen, if you're an infantry-heavy army and you haven't touched your infantry yet, because yeah. you're too busy painting all your tanks and never touching infantry. <laughs> Not that I'm picking on anyone, James. Look, 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 let's be honest. Out of our entire regular 40k gaming group, only one person has painted has a painted army, and that's because he paid someone else to paint it for him. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> so I, I think I think as far as painting output goes, I'm probably the highest in, yeah. our, in our close. Okay, point yeah, now. that's true. <laughs> Just happens to be a lot of tanks. You know, I'm waiting for the apocalypse rules to come out, which has also been teased now at uh, Warhammer Fest. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, any any other GW news that sort of stood out for you in the last month or so? Not really. I think the paint thing sort of eclipsed everything else. Hasn't yeah, it, that's really? it. Yeah, yeah. But they've been doing some more stuff for Age of Sigma, um, but. Uh, yeah, I think that the contrast paints come out next week. I'll be interested to see what goes on release after that. So. And um, the only other thing that I'm really keen for are the new enforcers for Necromunda. Oh, yeah. So, oh. 
They've got their own controversy now, you see. Yeah, because they don't look like Arbatees, because they're not Arbatees. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) It's like saying, huh, the new Marines don't look anything like the Valhallans. Well, no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) So, I mean, that's the thing, is that um, they they do look nice. I would use them in a pinch to do Arbatees models, like in a a role-playing game, for example, but they don't have the classic Arbatees helmet or the shields or the aquilas on their shoulders or such, you know. They're rent-a-cops. They're not not the FBI. They're rent-a-cops. Some people are sort of, I've heard, call them sort of like the American sort of version of of 40K models and such, you know, that they're they're like some sort of American gang. One of them looks very much like the Punisher. Okay. (laughs) But, I mean, I like the weapons and such, you know. Um, Someone complained there was no, because most of the Necromunda gangs have at least one or two female sculpts. Yeah. Um, not all of them do, um, but like the Goliath Stone, for example. Well, um, they could have female sculpts under their armour, which is just bulky padded suits. Exactly right, yeah. So <laughs> they, have, they have no svelte, shapely female sculpts, you know, or female heads. <laughs> there you go. What a shame. Exactly. Um, all right, well, that's really it from the, the 40K side. Uh, I mean, as far as computer games go, there hasn't really been any... Any news recently, I don't think. Um, oh, no, they've, they've announced the first Warhammer 40k game for the Nintendo Switch. Um, I don't know much about it other than the fact that it will come out later on this year. I do have a Nintendo Switch. I bought a Nintendo Switch in the last month for my child to be able to play um, uh, Pokemon Let's Go Eevee. Uh, so, you know, I will get to yeah, actually... Yeah, yeah. For him to play it, James. I literally have not touched it, Mike, so don't start. Don't cut that with me. <laughs> I've been I've been playing Mortal Kombat 11 in this last month. All oh, right, okay. so, um, You've been way <laughs> above that level, then. Sorry. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I obviously can't play that when my kids are awake. So, uh, but okay, so I'll definitely pick up this, uh, this one again when it comes out on the Switch. I, I don't know whether the big deal was releasing on the Switch along with the other platforms or if it was like, it will be a Switch exclusive thing. Because remember the old... Do you remember the Nokia Engage? There was like a single 40K game that was exclusive to that. And it's like... I've never heard of the Nokia, Nokia Engage. Engage so. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw them in the shops. So I saw one you could rent from a video store when they used to... Remember when they used to have video stores? Yeah. yeah so. Jeez, James. Show your age. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's the important news. Let's actually get on to some interesting stuff for the show too. Okay. Knowledge is power. Well. All right, so let's get on to some rules discussion. And last episode, we covered off the rules for the uh, Adeptus Astartes and Primaris Astartes species. Yep. So since we're talking about the Eldar today, you know, in honor of the recent Inari update, which turned out to be a lot less than I expected it to be, um, we're covering off the Eldari uh, as a species. Uh, so this will be a pretty short rules section, I suppose, and we'll, we'll crack straight into the, uh, the career section. So... Um, the Adari are a tier one available species, so along with humans. Um, they do cost 10 build points. Um, That's it. But the Adari gangers, they're available. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. <laughs> um, but they do get plus one agility for their 10 points. So, once again, this is one of those things that's not fully balanced. So, the more agility you have, the greater the ROI or return on investment on that particular cost is. You know, So, once you get, I think, above agility, once you get the three or above, you're actually saving on points versus making a human with the same level of agility. Yeah. Um, but you have to deal with the fact that you're a stinking elder. Exactly right, yes. <laughs> uh, they have a base speed of eight, which is uh, the fastest in the game. Um, okay, their special abilities, uh, they have two. The first one is Outsider, uh, which increases 
the difficulty on all interaction tests of those with the Imperium keyword by two. So, so, so they have three, they have three traits, sorry. So the first one being outsider. So yeah, this one I found interesting because rather than applying this to the Aldari species and the Orc species, I would have rather put a blanket rule simply saying that you have a plus two DN to deal with anybody you don't share a keyword with. Yeah, but you might share a keyword. Sorry? Well, that, that would suggest that an Elder Warlock wouldn't well, get that penalty sorry, to deal with an Imperial Because they've got a cycle, that's true, yeah. Well, or uh, an Orc Weird Boy would be get along fine with Navigators and, and Astropaths, which I don't really see happening. Well, okay, so... so I'm happy with that, right? But this way, a human, any human, doesn't get this penalty dealing with Eldari. Because, like, I mean, a human is, is an outsider to an Eldari by the same token as such. Yeah. You know, an, an Eldari doesn't get this penalty dealing with an orc. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that is a little bit odd. Yeah. I, I, I think they should just put in a racial thing, which is if you have a different racial species, with the exception of marines, yeah. you suffer a penalty dealing with... Unless you somehow acquire that racial... Like, with any trade, I suppose you could acquire the racial... Um, keyword. Keyword, potentially. Yeah, I suppose it's possible. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is that, um, it, it, to me, this is one of those elements of the game that struck me as being endemic of the fact that the Wrath and Glory initial setting is Imperium-centric. Yeah. So it matters in, in an Imperial campaign that, that an Eldar and an Orc are an outsider, but we'll see what happens when they eventually get to the point of doing an Eldar campaign. Yeah. I, I um, would think that the Eldar campaign would probably have a similar rule where humans are viewed as, you know, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Monkey. Monkey. That's it. Um, I, and, and I will point out, I didn't say this during the news section, but you know, one of the claims made by Cubicle 7 is they intend to increase the cadence of games released for Wrath and Glory. They tend to release more books. Yeah. So that would be nice to get some, some more material to play with, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we already saw from Facebook pages that apparently there is another book. or We knew, we knew Dark Imperium is in the works, and apparently we, knew, we, we know from people who worked on it that it has something to do with the um, Ogrens and... Uh, no, just, just the Ogrens that appeared in the pre-order bundle. Apparently, they, they someone was saying on Facebook they reappeared in the um, in whatever upcoming book as well. So, yep. uh, All right, next one is Intense Emotion. So this gives them one plus one DN on all resolve tests. Um, and any time they fail a willpower roll in an emotional scene, it gives the GM one ruin. Um, I mean, there's a bit of a value judgment here on what is an emotional scene. Um, well, it's a good thing there's a GM who gets to decide <laughs> these things. Exactly right. yeah, well, but it's, if you're giving the person who gets the benefit the power to decide whether they get the benefit or not. Yeah, yeah you, it's funny that, isn't it? <laughs> you'd hope that, yeah. But your GM would just go, I'm going to take one room. I'm going to take one room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they can do that anyway. I mean... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that one's not a big deal for me. Um, and that's the one you get rid of if you take uh, the... Um, uh, Legacy of Sorrow um, talent, which is not that fantastic, but we'll come back to it anyway. Uh, and then the last one is Psychosensitive, uh, which basically means that as long as you put at least one point in a Psychic Mastery, the character gains the Psychic Keyword um, and can purchase one minor Psychic Power. Yeah. Um, it also increases the tier, effective tier by one for the purpose of working out Psychic limitations, because normally a tier one character can't know any Psychic Powers. I guess the only thing here is that it doesn't say whether you can or cannot buy more psychic powers. It simply just says a character creation, you can buy one minor psychic power if they if you purchase psychic mastery. I'd say that unless they buy, you know, become a proper psyker, 
Yeah, that's it. In which case, I mean, like, how, how would you do it? Because they've already got the psychic keyword, so... So really, they it. are a proper psychic. So yeah, I could guess they can, but yeah. be risky. And then, If that's not on your path and you're just learning it without a proper structure in place, that's how you get killed. That's it. That's how you get slash gets involved. Because in. <laughs> that's, that's how you get slash. Yeah, that's how you get a fall. <laughs> that's it. Uh, I mean, if I was running a campaign where someone was playing in Eldari, I would probably allow them to buy minor psychic powers. I probably wouldn't allow them to buy just it's not even the ruins of battle. I, I think, I mean, which is the old aspect where I'd probably just stick with minor psychic powers because... Then they say become a warlock. Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, in, in the scope of, um, you know, the tabletop, yeah, you, you never really have... You know, if you have, like, an Eldar character like Prince Ariel, you know, he doesn't have any psychic powers at all in the scope of the game. He's not a psychic character who can't deny the witch. Yeah. Uh, that being said, it's not playing... It's not saying that all Eldar are psychic, only if they spend one point at least in psychic mastery, which is soft because that's one build point to get that. Yeah. To get the psychic You'd be silly not to spend one XP point to pick it up. Exactly. All right. So that's really... That's the Eldari species. So let's move on from here and get straight into the discussion about the career itself. Yeah. All supplicants report to the administrator for career assignment. All right. So as we said at the start of the show, we, we put the question to you, the listeners, about what... Aldari Cree wanted to hear most about, and the answer we got was the Corsair. I will point out, though, that uh, once again, because of the limitations of a business page on Facebook, I couldn't create a poll with more than two options. Huh. So uh, the advice I was given was to have a like for this, you know, love for this, and laugh for this. The problem there was by using like as one of the options, a lot of people just, without reading our posts, go, oh, like, I'll like every post that Grim- Grimdark Podcast posts. So, so Corsair was so the, the like option? Was, was, yeah, was, uh, was, we have to remember this for when we want to put it to the people, but we actually want to just do what we want yeah. anyway. So, okay. so in the future, it's going to be going to be love, laugh, or angry. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, you, and like the post. If you just like the post, I guess. Okay, angry will always be awkward, boy, no matter what we're talking about. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's talk about the Corsair. So, um, first off, uh, the Corsair, I, I gotta admit, I, I didn't know a lot about Eldar until really getting properly into 8th edition. I, I did own one of the earlier, like I think 5th edition Eldar Craftworld's army books, but I didn't know much about the Unrathe, which is what the, the Corsairs are. So, just to sort of differentiate the Unrathe from the other Eldar, so effectively, after the, the fall of the Eldar, the, the two most common uh, groups were the Asurani, which are the group of Eldar that became the craft worlds, where they followed um, you know, the teachings of Assyrian and basically put themselves into strict paths. To control their passions. Control their passions. Once they got to a certain point in the path to risk and the risk of falling into hubris, they would then change to a different path, basically. Um, then you've got the Drakari who were like, you know, we are going to save ourselves by condemning others. So Sinesh wants to eat our souls. All we need to do is make sure she's so fat of everyone else's souls. So when I say she, she must not be named. Um, or she who thirst. She who thirst, sorry, that's what we call her. Yeah. Or it. Um, the, you know, they're not going to eat our souls. And then the Unrathe are pretty much the Eldar that said, no, nope, we're going to live the way we always lived. We're going to be hedonists. We're going to be, you know, we're going to do what we want to do. Uh, and they're a relatively small group. Um, I think the Exodites... The Exodites um, were another group. They decided to go back to the old ways before they became technologically advanced. Yeah, that's right. Go and live among dinosaurs and, and the ruins of their civilization and farm and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. um, so most Anrathe pretty much get into a life of 
vagabond pirates, almost is what I, what I, the way I describe them as such. They they are Eldar, but they are not constrained to the sort of the, the, the systems of the craft world, nor are they evil jerks like the majority of the Drakari. Oh, they're still jerks. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're, they're <laughs> well, pirates and raiders who yeah, just exactly do right. whatever they feel like. Yeah, that's it. They're immoral. Yeah, that's it. Do, do what you want to be the whole of the law. Um, so that's a bit. I mean, the role of the Corsair in the game really is that they, they live an impassioned life like the ancient Eldar did. Um, they're, I, I guess they're the classic embodiment of freedom where they, they won't be constrained by any, anyone's rules as such. We're just going to live the life they want. Um, and they're, I think, quite sort of skilled, fast combatants. And I think that out of all the Eldar archetypes, they probably have the most scope to blend Easily, like, like you know, to join a road trader's crew or work for an inquisitor. Um, Definitely. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they don't really... They're not tied into the politic of the craft world. Yeah, that people used to say, oh, it would be a ranger or, or, or a scout, but they have to report back to their craft world. They're dealing with their craft world all the time. Yeah. They're looking out for their craft world, whereas a Corsair is is looking out for themselves, maybe their crew or the, or the, whoever their liege lord is. Yeah. That, so so really if, I was gonna, if I was going to put a Corsair into an Imperial group, I'd be going lines of like this this group. My character like this group is just interesting to be with. I'm, I'm getting more I'm getting more enjoyment and excitement with these group this group than I was with my previous band. Whereas if it was like a ranger, you know, on the path of the exile, my storyline would probably be more something like the elder of my. Craftworld told me you need to go and help this inquisitor for reasons that we don't, you know, because the stone said so, pretty much. Yeah. Um, and, and it's actually like more of a mission than a simply yeah. because I, because I want to be here. Yeah, I, I think it relies a bit more on having a sort of personal connection with the other characters yeah. than being any, you know, than being a um an, an exile ranger, scout, whatever. Yeah. A pathfinder. Um. Yeah. Yeah, right. I agree with that. Okay. Let's talk about building a Corsair. So they are a tier one um, archetype, which means they have zero build points, nice and easy. Uh, minimum agility of three, which is easy to reach with your plus one free agility from being Eldari. Uh, minimum skill of athletics two. Uh, they get the keywords um, Eldari, Unrathe, and they also get a coterie sort of variable keyword based on whatever coterie they, they choose to be a part of or are, are a part of. Um, all right, so they have an influence score of plus zero. Um, their special ability is called Dancing on the Blade's Edge, which allows them to add their rank on either athletics or persuasion interaction attacks and and defense. Now, you need to choose that at character creation, whether your specialty is doing and resisting athletics or persuasion interaction attacks. But basically, you get the bonus dice there. Um, they also suffer a, a bonus or a, a, one more difficulty on all fear checks. So they're even more impassioned than a standard Eldar is with its intense emotion as such. Um, their war gear, they get Corsair armor, which is just a standard uh, three, so same as flak armor. Um, shuriken pistol, a las blaster, spirit stone, three plasma grenades, and a void suit. So yeah. Pretty sort of typical adventurer gear almost. All they're missing is a 10-foot pole. Uh, okay, so in terms of things you might want to prioritize build-wise, I mean, agility obviously is their key stat. Probably willpower because they are, you know, if you don't want to be failing all those sort of fear and emotion checks all the time and giving your, your GM lots of ruin, um, probably but, you know, willpower is a good way to go. I think fellowship, they're probably one of the more social styles of the, the Eldar archetypes, basically. Yep. Um, because they've got 
a good agility. They're going to be good at shooting. If you want to get them into the melee side, then would you consider things like initiative and strength as well, potentially? You know, I'd, I'd say probably initiative rather than strength. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd go decent initiative. Give them good defense because they're not going to have great toughness. Or the only other thing is going to be that one of their key skills is athletics, which runs off strength. But I mean, you can go off the basis that a high skill and a low attribute is still a higher than average number, as such. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, skills wise, yeah, athletics is one of their main skills. Probably ballistic skill is your main combat skill. Um, I think that cunning is probably one of the sort of the better um, intellectual skills for them. Persuasion, pilot. A lot of them, you know, are trained in various forms of spacecraft. Psychic mastery. If you want to do, if you do want to have that psychic trait as well, um, probably things like stealth and survival then too. Yeah. Um, in terms of talents, uh, there's a few things that, like, you, you probably wouldn't buy talents for a tier one character because they're, they're quite costly. They're a huge chunk of your base hundred points, but things you might consider down the track for your character. Um, if you want to get rid of that fear penalty, you go for you know, fearless for thirty points, but that's that's a pretty hefty tax to get rid of fear. Yeah. Um, Legacy of Sorrow is the Eldar specific one, which is twenty points. It allows them to no longer suffer from the effects of intense emotion, um, and you get a you get plus one glory every time you pass a defiance check. Now, keep in mind, passing a defiance check requires first taking a critical injury, so you don't want to be getting all that glory all the time, but it's a consideration. Yep. Um, and also, um, the other one I looked at was Mastered Paths. Now, Mastered Paths says it's got a requirement of Eldari Azirani, and, you know, the whole path system is really a concept of the Azirani. But with the other talents, you only need to have one of the relevant keywords to be able to take it. So by r- rules as written, you could therefore take Mastered Paths as, well, you could as, have, as a Corsair. You could very well have been an Azirani who mastered a path and then went, you know what? This just isn't for me. Yeah. A life of Corsair it shall be. Or maybe you got exiled. Yeah. like. Properly exiled, like uh, Prince. Is it you? Ariel. Ariel. Yeah. yeah. He's exiled from um, Sam Hain, I think. Uh, that's the one that was the blue and yellow one. Um, Lottie. Uh, uh, no, uh, I can't remember now. <laughs> it's not, not like an Earth. It's not Boothway. It's not Ali. It's not Alitok. Um, <laughs> Someone, someone's going to criticise us for not knowing our all our craft worlds. Seriously, <laughs> some group of pointy-eared gits that yep. live in a big flying egg. Yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Master Paths isn't a bad one to give yourself a second background, obviously, you know. So, uh, for 20 points, once again, if it's more, more if I had an ascended character, I'd look at something like that to get a more interesting background. Probably doesn't make as much sense to take it post character creation. Yeah. So, if I was playing like a tier two or a tier three Corsair, I'd probably look at taking Master Paths for some more interesting stuff. Um, okay, so some tips on playing a Corsair. Um, first off, remember that we talk about this at the end of the show as well, that the motivations for them are quite alien. Don't think of them in, in, ter- in human terms. Try to come up with weird ways of working because they are alien. Um, expect to out- outlive your peers. You know, so for a lot of Eldar, when they're dealing with humans, they see humans as very transient beings. You know, they're going to live for hundreds of years. The, hu- the, the interaction with these humans represents a tiny part of their very long life. Uh, and so, um, yeah, let that sort of color the way you interact with them. You're not going to be forming long-term relationships with people that will be dead before you are you, you, you traverse more than ten percent of your life through, basically. Yeah, so. but you might form a deep attachment to a bloodline. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, and just remember, when it comes to Corsairs, they're all about wild and reckless abad- abandon, you know? So, yeah. um, abandon, sorry, not abandon, abandon someone else. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all about experiencing passions and emotions, and yeah. that includes the negative ones. So, if they fail fear checks, that's still an emotion and a passion and something thrilling. People go on roller coasters and to see scary movies because they like it. Yep. Yeah. You know, staring down a car effects and running away, wetting your pants might fulfill the same, you know, basic desire in this elder. My 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 kid, my, my eldest son loves this like iPad game called Granny Horror Game, where you're trying to escape a house with this sort of horrific granny figure that's chasing you around. And he's watched people play it through on YouTube. You know, he knows everything to do to, just from the start of the game to exit getting out of the house. You know, but. He likes to play it himself, but he gets to a certain point where you've got to get past the spider, and he knows how to get past the spider because he's watched it on YouTube, but he just stops playing there because he's too afraid to, to play in the game with the spider despite knowing how to get around it. Is and he so, scared of spiders? Not generally, no. He just, I, just, I mean, look, like, I mean, plenty of spiders in computer games look pretty creepy, you know, yeah. even if you, if, you, if, you, even if you don't mind. I don't mind real spiders. I don't like, like, I remember always playing the old... Um, uh, I, I the beholder with the sort of the spiders making the clicking sound when they were moving around. That was always a freaky noise. So, yeah. but um, any case, uh, I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, you're right. It's part of the human. There's a human desire to be to be scared, and so therefore, for the corsairs, it's part of the emotional gamut they run. Yeah, they they probably have a similar desire. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's keep talking about Eldar in the next segment. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So for today's review, um. Because we're talking about Eldar, and, and actually this is why we inspired the Eldar conversation, was that when we recorded the last show, we knew that there was rules coming out in the following month for the Inari. And I assumed that was going to be a new mini codex, just like we saw with Harlequins, with Death Watch, that sort of thing. With, with Assassins, you were thinking? Well, no, no, no. I was, I was thinking like a book, published book, like we had. Like no, with, no, no. Yeah. It was always going to come out in the White Dwarf. Okay, well, I misinterpreted that, and you didn't correct me. Okay, uh-huh, so okay. I, when, I, when I discovered it was coming out in the White Dwarf, and yeah, pretty much it was basically the same thing as what Assassins was, I was sort of like, you know, I was hoping for more information because, you know, they were still full books when it came to, like, Death Watch, and they gave you a lot of information about the background, and... I think that Anari are a relatively new concept to 40k that I would like to know more about and stand more about because all we've really got to go on so far is the Gathering Storm series. Yeah. Um, now Anari as a faction were doing very well in the in the in the 40k meta um, early on, um, and they got nerfed a couple of times. Um, so the big, I guess, the big controversial ability that the Anari had or had. Uh, at the, at the, in early 8th edition was basically that any time a unit died within a certain range of an Inari unit, whether it was another Inari unit or an enemy unit, then one Inari unit could immediately attack as though it was a fight phase or shoot as though it was a shooting phase. Um, so it was possible to get off all these cascading abilities where, you know, somebody dies near me, so I then get off a shot which kills somebody else, which is near somebody else, which triggers them to do something as well. And it was all these free out-of-turn attacks. Uh, and that really, I mean, my very first 8th edition game of 40K was against Inari. And, um, yeah, I remember I was sort of like, like sending a, a multi-melter bike over to take out a group of Dark Reapers, and they blew it up. And because it was close enough, then they got to shoot again and blew up something else as well. And being sort of shocked, I was like, oh, okay, so this is what 8th edition is like at the, at the time. Um but yeah, that was for the really sort of, I would call salt, the soul burst was that ability. 
Um, that was then nerfed down at a later point to basically be something that could only occur once per turn and could only occur during your own turn. So you didn't get to Soul Burst during your opponent's turn. Um, so that being said, they were still quite powerful. There were a lot of sort of soup lists of mixed Eldar units with Inari. I mean, the Inari army list is really just three units. It's the three characters that came with the Gathering Storm. So that's the Inkhan, the Vice Arc, and Evrain. Um, everything else they use is just standard sheets from Craftworld Eldar, from Harlequins, and from Dakari. Uh, but they change certain rules. Uh, the big change now with this new codex in White Dwarf is that um, they've completely changed Soulburst altogether now, which is if any unit dies within a certain distance of your units during your turn, for the remainder of that turn, all Anari units fight first in the fight phase. The ability similar to like what um, uh, uh, Empress, Children. Empress Children have. And Slanesh Demons. Yeah, something. Um, which, you know, like those ones means that if, if it, they, effectively what it means, it means they've charged if they haven't. So they, they alternate in the charge phase um, and they get to fight for anyone who hasn't charged. And if other abilities, if other units have that ability, they swap back and forth as well, you know. Now, Eldar as a race have never really had a lot of close combat units. More in the Drakari. They have some nice ones in the Drakari. Uh, no, I think striking scorpions, howling banshees would, would disagree with you. Yeah, well, I mean, they're too. And, and, and the wraith, wraith, blade, wraith blades and um, uh, you know, that, that group as well, they're not too bad. But, I mean, I think by and large... They've always been hampered with their close combat units by the fact that they've just got lousy strength. Yes, yeah, three, three, three toughness is what yeah. lets them down, really. Um, and they don't really have big damage melee weapons. They don't have, like, the D3 melee, D3 damage melee weapons. It's more about more attacks, dropping more saving throws, which has a greater chance of just dropping a few wounds here and there, really. Yeah. Um, so I think that it, this was a pretty big nerf. Not that I'm saying they probably didn't need it because nobody I knew that played Inari was doing it for the fluff. They were doing it for the broken rules. Yeah. Um, whereas I was interested in Inari from a fluff point of view. I'm more of a I'm more of a fluff storyline type player anyway. Except when I'm playing you for the first time in edition and I have to crush you with everything I've got. Yeah. Um, but uh, in this particular case, yeah, I'm, I wasn't so sure. So as far as the, this sort of segment in, in White Dwarf goes, yep, you've got the new stat or the updated stats for the three main characters. You've got the updated soul burst. You've now got your um, stratagems and your uh, your war gear. Um, what I found quite likable was that they've actually got an Inari paint scheme now as well. They've actually said, okay, this is the colouring that Inari, whether they be Craftworlds or Drakari or Harlequins, this is what they use. And it's a sort of a red and black yeah. paint scheme, um, which doesn't look too bad. It looks very similar to one of the other... Um, once again, I'm, I'm drawing a, 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 a blank on the on the Eldar Craftworld, but the, the sort of the default... Uh, Craftworld colouring you get on all the Craftworld boxes is that red and black colouring, um, which I think is actually supposed to be red and white. But in any case, um, yeah, they, they have their own colour scheme now. So overall, I, I would call my... I'd say I was disappointed with this mini codex. I, I liked the Assassin's mini codex a lot more. The Assassin's mini codex brought Assassins back into the game, which had been sort of dropped out of the meta. The Anari mini codex pushed Anari out of the meta. Yeah, I, I think it's a stopgap. 
They've got no intention at the moment of releasing this book, probably because they don't have the models ready yet. Yeah, they didn't have new models, I think, for it to make it worthwhile. Yeah, so. Um, so until they're in that situation, they'll release a little White Wolf mini codex thing, so they can say, yep, they've got updated rules since the indexes. We can now throw the indexes away. I think, and that's, I think that was really the crux, was that yeah. they wanted basically to be done, be done once and for all with the indexes. Yeah. And, and this is one of the simple so items. Yeah. To, to be honest, I would see this as, in the next couple of months, we'll probably see an Inquisitor mini codex in a white wolf. I think we've already, we're just having the agents of the, agents of the Imperium, basically. I think there's yeah. a, I was able to say that's going to happen. Okay. And then, and then obviously Sisters of Battle is the one sort of, I think. And then Sisters of Battle, and then everything from the indexes is covered. Yeah. They'll get rid of the indexes, and then they'll do an announcement in the FAQ saying, no, you can no longer use the indexes. Which will piss a lot of people off. Oh, absolutely. A lot of people still use some index options. Yeah. Where you can't, you cannot make the model option you've got using the codexes. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of units that appear in the index which don't appear in the codexes. Yeah, I have to say that that's my biggest complaint about Eighth Edition. It has been from the beginning is it really does cripple anyone who wants to do a conversion. Yeah. So if I want to play an exalted champion of chaos yep. with a jump pack, no, can't be done. There's yeah. no such thing. For some reason, as soon as they become an Exalted Champion, if they were a Terminator Champion before, they throw their Terminator armor away until they become a Lord again. <laughs> they throw away their jump pack, and they go, no, I'm just going to wade in in my power armor and my pointy stick, and then once I've won enough battles to actually become a true Lord, then I can start using that cool stuff again. It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that um, it'll be controversial when that happens. Oh, when yeah, the, when the absolutely next will, but... Yeah, I mean, I think we're also looking at seeing... We'll see a second edition of the Space Marine Codex surely soon. I was surprised they actually did cast Space Marines first. Yeah. But they had the models ready to go. I think that's more what it was about. But um, anyway, that's enough for review. Let's, uh, let's keep going. Okay. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. In today's discussion, I wanted to talk a little bit, since we talked about Eldar, um, about playing aliens in Wrath and Glory. And I know we've spoken about it before in earlier shows, particularly around the older settings, but just want to reiterate some of the sort of basic concepts because I think a common misconception, uh, like especially in the case of Eldar, is that Eldar are space elves. And so people are used to playing fantasy races in Dungeons and Dragons where, you know, the, the, being a dwarf, being an elf, being a half-orc, they are just little idiosyncrasies upon a normal human sort of personality as such, you know, so, you know, dwarves are a little bit more gruff, you know, elves are a little bit more poncy, whatever the case may be. And I think that to truly sort of get the understanding of what a Xeno is in the 40K setting, it needs to be more than just an aesthetic affectation. You know, you need to find a way to convey the fact that these characters are quite distinct from the Imperial norm. Yeah, they, they don't fit in. They're not just a human with pointy ears, um, you know, or orcs with a, you know, with a football hook and accent, that sort of stuff. Yeah, they're, they're, there are particular ways about them that are quite distinct. And probably the best I saw for this was in one of the pre-published adventures for Dark Ages 2nd Edition, where there was a scene on a rogue trader ship that included a Eldar ranger that had sort of was, was working with the rogue trader. And there was a whole sidebar about playing her as being quite strange. And, you know, she would find things that were quite inappropriate, funny, yeah. you know, or, or or do things that you just don't do because it was just the style of, you know, her culture as such was different from the style of Imperial culture. So 
I think there's something that, you know, as a player of Xeno character, you want to do, but there's also the risk that you don't want it to become slapstick. You don't want it to become, you know, a contrived point that, oh, my character always does this particular thing and it's because they're a, they're an alien and, and everyone finds it amusing and it becomes a, a comedy point. You know, it's, it, it needs to be strange, not funny. Yeah. You know, so a good example there is, is it just, just a, an alien understanding of how things work. So, you know, they might see a relatively mundane activity that the other characters do as being strange. Like, you know, they'd never do it that way, you know, whatever the case may be, whether it's, you know, I'm trying to think of examples, you know, cause we're not aliens, you know, we don't really have, um, that, I mean, I, I, so an example might be if you have like a race which have, has an incredible memory span, the idea of keeping a book after reading it, you know, as far as, you know, that, 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 that race may just feel that once a book has been read, it's no, it's nothing more than fuel for fire because it, I've got I've got everything I can obtain from that book except for its material value, which is a, as paper basically that sort of stuff, which might be a complete anathema to a to a human academic or researcher that you know wants to put those things away as such. Um, once again, so it could be it could be they find human activity strange. It could be that humans find their activity strange. You know that the way that they they handle things is just quite distinct. But you want to sort of come up with ways to represent this and, and definitely working with the GM so you can agree on things that are going to add value to the story and not detract from it with silliness, really. I mean, is, is all this sounding on yeah. part of you, Mike? You know I mean? Pretty much. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. That yeah. Playing aliens means that they're, well, alien. Yeah. Um, you, you can look at sort of cultural differences between various human groups, if you like. If, if you're interested, just look up some some old cultures that aren't practiced anymore by various European tribes or African tribes or Asian tribes and just have a look at those weird sorts of things that they used to do, which we would now consider very strange. Yeah. Uh, and, and Probably just, offensive in my social context. Oh, absolutely. Know, so, yeah. Absolutely. And um, yeah, keep in mind that, that sometimes things your character is going to want to do will run against the flow of what's socially acceptable. Yeah. But, don't forget also that your character is going to learn from it. If they re- realise that, you know... People keep me offended because I do this, you know. So. They're probably going to stop or conceal it or, or yeah, try and educate the, the lesser Monkai as to why it is totally acceptable to do this. I, mean, I, I guess to use a real-world example, you could sort of say things like the fact that in a past day and age, it was considered polite to belch loudly at the end of your meal. Because that, that showed the chefs that you had appreciated the meal. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, going to a restaurant and belt slightly so the whole restaurant can hear it would be considered a social faux pas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are, are cultural changes. And, and these, are, these are within, you know, a consistent culture. These are just, you know, changes in human culture over time. Um, but they'd, they'd probably be even more extreme between alien cultures. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that... With Eldar, probably the interesting concept to explore is the fact that Eldar as a race are an extremely emotional race where the majority of Eldar, if you're talking about like the Asurani, try to suppress those emotions. Yeah. You know, so they, they try to be, you know, a picture of control when in reality, like just uh, suppressing your emotions doesn't mean they're not there. Yeah. Um, and well, well, that's it. That's something I've always found with role playing games that people go, oh, well, it's an emotional character, so they try and play it like 
you know, Spock from Star Trek. Yeah. But that they sort of missed the aspect of, of the inner struggle of the fact that he was half human and he wanted to act on his emotions, but he was desperately trying not to. Yeah. Yeah. So the emotions are there and they may try and stop and not act on them, but it doesn't mean that's always going to happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's it's always one of those things where um, you got to be careful with player agency because it might be the, the GM should be saying to a character, well, look, yeah, or the player, your character is feeling Im- immensely emotional about this particular thing. And the player can hear that and understand that, but then just go, well, I'll just brush it off. I'll just, you know, I, I choose to suppress that and keep acting like a, like a soulless automata. Well, and, that's fine, but that's going to generate some ruin for the GM. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's, but it, I, I suppose it's, but yeah, you're right. Systems, systems that incentivize players to play correctly rather than disincentivized players who play poorly are, are much better. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think it's one of those things where you need to sort of focus on yeah, what but, um, about, I, I know what you mean because it's always tempting to say to someone at the end of the session, well, you, you didn't play your character properly. We're not going to, I'm not going to give you as much XP as everyone else. And that is totally the wrong attitude to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I still remember, but it's been a long time now, but we used to play games where yeah, people would get varying XP awards per session and we'd have things like, you know, asking people to justify certain, you know, yeah. what did your character learn this session? And yeah. It's one of those things. Nowadays, I'm just, everyone gets the same XP. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps, it's easy to track, keeps the game on par. You know, at any point in time, I can, I can, I can vet a character and say, how much XP has everyone earned? Okay. I'll just make sure this character is spent up to the right level. Yeah. But yes, <laughs> that's right. That's a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. So look, I mean, if you're looking to explore Aldari in the Wrath and Glory system, just, and, and, you know, you don't need to do heavy research on what Aldari are specifically like. You know, it could be specific to that coterie, specific to that part of that, that, um, that craft world. You know, th- that there are individual cultures within the metaculture. Mm. Um, and so yeah, it, it also depends what paths they've already done. If your character's already done a path as a tailor, or a gardener, he's going to have a very different outlook on things as to one which has done only combative and psychic types of paths in the past, yeah. or has only just started his first path and is quite young, you know, all well, these sorts I, of things. I, I think from memory, and, and I might be wrong here, but just from the materials I've read with the other, I have this feeling that when they change paths, they forget a lot about the old path. Yeah, yeah they've still got things like the muscle memory, that sort of stuff there, but they choose to block out I guess, you know, you, you wouldn't, you, you couldn't take an old art character that's walked five paths and give them the same experience layout as five characters that had walked one path each. Yeah. Yeah. You know, effectively, they, 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 it's almost like a, um, a, 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 you've got to pour something out to pour more in almost, you know, so they've got to sort of section off and, and starting. It's almost like your, your uh, Black Crusade character, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're a thousand sun sorcerer had to keep sort of creating new personalities to deal with the fact that he'd been around for thousands of years and didn't want to go insane. Yeah. But of course <laughs> he was quite insane because it takes a special type of insanity to do that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well just, just some food for thought anyway. So since yeah. we're talking about Eldar, I thought it's not not a bad conversation to have anyway. So um let's move on to closing out the show, shall we? Yep. All astropaths in the quiet chamber. Message incoming. All right, so this part of the show, we normally talk about any sort of feedback we've received or comments we've received. Um, I haven't got specific things I want to talk about here, but I will call out um, that I want to thank all the people that contacted us in the last month over the events regarding the license change from Ulysses to uh, Cubicle 7, especially Jacob Smith, who was uh, he's always a, a sort of good ally of the show and contacts us regularly. He was sort of posting any sort of 
articles you could see about what was going on. Linking um, us to them as well. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, lots of interesting things um, happening on the, the Wrath and Glory uh, Facebook group as well. Uh, sorry, actually, I'm not going to name every person there, but it was really, you know, it was a, a, a community effort to focus on what was going on during those changes. And, yep, there was some doom and gloom going on, but I think it all worked out in the end. And yeah. I think that the, the overall attitude regarding the change is a positive one. You know, yeah. that... that um, a lot of people feel that you know this is the, the change is overall in it's an advantage for for the game sort of system itself. So yeah, definitely, I mean, it's more books, more focus, better games. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so so thanks to all the people that did reach out to us as well. Uh, if you do want to reach out to us in the future, there are many ways to do so. Our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com/grimdartpodcast. Our Twitter account is at GrimDartPodcast, and you can email us at show at GrimDartPodcast.com. Uh, coming up, episode 106, uh, there's a system we haven't actually covered, I'll surprise we haven't covered yet, which is actually War Gear and Acquisition. Um, I want to go through the Inquisitor archetype and specifically have a chat about high-level Wrath and Glory play. Yeah. Because um, we did a couple of playtest game sessions, at, you know, Tier 4, Tier 5 as well, and it's got it's some, some unique considerations that we wanted to go through. Um, on the review side, I've got two options here. First one is that there's been a lot of new stuff happening with Kill Team. And I've seen, looking at Wrath and Glory boards, there's been a lot more people interested in Kill Team than 40k because of the RPG right now. So one option is to do a bit of a, a review on the current state of Kill Team, like what's come out for it and what's going on there. The other thing is that um, the second round of the Warhammer Adventures stories came out. So uh, recently I picked up for my son um, Claws of the Gene Stealer. Yeah, uh, which he's read, and he's very keen to come back on the show and talk about that. So it'll probably be one or the other of those two things for a review next next show as well. well so. We'll do whichever one we don't do in the show after. Exactly right. Unless yeah. something else comes along. Yeah, it's been better. You never know. We could, there could be a new book for Wrath and Glory, and we'll see. It's, yeah. It depends on what our cadence of releasing shows is like. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, it's, it's, we've sort of been keeping about a one-a-month cadence right now anyway, so yeah. uh, we'll try and keep it up, and, and yeah, maybe if... if things adjust in the future we can prove that but right now i want to keep our limitations in mind we have very active lives and children and everything work. around and work exactly yeah but uh, mike thank you once again for taking part you're welcome and we look forward to catching you all at the next show this podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with games workshop or ulysses of america one hundred forty thousand wrath and glory dark heresy rogue trader death watch black crusade only war and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright games workshop mission Ulysses North America is a trademark of Ulysses Media and Spiel Distribution GmbH. All other materials are trademarks of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music was composed by Jens Kilsoffer and is used under license.